Just a reminder before we kick on with today's show that we've got a special event in Saratoga on Saturday morning, July 30th, a chance to watch some horses work out from a beautiful backyard on Fifth Avenue in Saratoga. We're going to have bagels, Bloody Marys. We'll talk a little racing. Looking for suggested donations of 25 per head to get you on the list. Going to be starting at 7.30 a.m. Just mention Bagels on the Oklahoma in the comments when you make your gift over at trfinc.org slash players. And hey, if you can't make the event and still want to donate, we encourage that as well. That link again, trfinc.org slash players. And now on with the show presented by our friends at Gainsway. The race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Gainsway. From top international bloodlines to rising stars on American soil, Gainsway's put together a stallion roster that is not only primed for future success, but is currently making its mark on the track, led by Caraconti's rising star, Spenderella, so impressive at Royal Ascot. Make sure you check out their entire roster for 2022 and see for yourself the power, passion, and performance of Gainsway. Hello and welcome to Baby Talk, special edition of Baby Talk. Not going to be drilling down into specific races, but speaking more generally about two-year-olds at Saratoga. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, coming to you from the little house on the east side and very excited to welcome in a guest who's been on these airwaves before, but I have not had the pleasure of being on with him in far too long. But he's taking time out of what is an insanely busy summer to share his wisdom with us today. He is David Aragona. David, what's up, my man? Not too much. It's a busy season, as you said, but the good kind of busy. You love doing the work for Saratoga, and I really enjoy this topic, talking about the two-year-old races. Fantastic. You've been off to a great start, uh, I would say, in both uh, selections that you're making as part of the Timeform U.S. analysis, also making the most reliable morning line by many statistical measures, and I have this from more than one source that's out there, what kind of pride do you take in making the line for a meet as difficult to make a line for as Saratoga? I mean, it obviously feels good. There are a lot more eyes trained on Saratoga than the other New York tracks at this time of year. And uh, you put a lot of work into it. At least I try to. i doing all the research and really agonizing over making sure you get them right. So it is pretty rewarding when it turns out that the public bets along the lines that you think they will. And uh, it's great that people notice because it uh, does have the reputation for being a thankless job. And typically a victory for me is when nobody's talking about it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Things you never hear at the racetrack track after a winner. Oh, I, I wish I didn't bet so much. And and then second is probably, man, what a great morning line. <laughs> yeah, not something that I hear too often, but it's okay to hear nothing. <laughs> Tell me, am I correct in my assumption that of all the races to make a line for that a lot of these two year old races are the toughest of all? They definitely require the most work. Uh, it's For me, it's more than just looking at the DRF Formulator PPs or the Timeform USPPs, which I typically use to make the lines for other races. I uh, have to look at a lot more uh, sources for getting the information on the two-year-olds. So it, it does require a bit more legwork, or at least uh, in the fingers, <laughs> uh, you know, browsing different websites, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, they're, they're more time-consuming, but I find it more rewarding when I get those right because I know I put in the work. 
how much do you do anecdotally? It feels like if you go out to the bars in Saratoga the night before one of these hot two-year-old races, you'll hear stories about so many horses. And then when the tote board opens up the next day, the, the tote board itself is a proxy for that same supposed inside information that you're getting. The, the stories translate into depressed numbers on the board. I feel like you you seem to have a crystal ball and know some of these horses ahead of time. How is that? How are you doing that? Or am I just noticing something that's not really existing? I mean, I'll be honest. I Maybe I don't talk to the right people, but I don't really hear a lot of buzz. Uh, that's not uh, something that I really factor into the lines too much. I mean, once in a while, when a horse is working exceptionally well, you'll obviously hear something about it. Like, for instance, before Jack Christopher debuted last summer at Saratoga, there were obviously people talking about this horse's workout videos before he made his debut. So it wasn't a big secret. And obviously, I heard a little bit of that. But uh, I'm not hearing a whole lot of inside sources or chatter or that kind of thing. And frankly, even if I was... I don't think I would let that influence me too much because typically the sources that are giving that for me, that information are a little biased. They don't really know exactly who else is in the race. So sometimes they could like their horse, but maybe five people really like their horse in the race. So you kind of have to uh, make those comparisons yourself. Uh, for me, I, I get the buzz from just using my eye to watch workout videos when they're available. That's really the bread and butter for me. Um, if you haven't gone to XBTV. They have a lot of workout videos at Saratoga uh, for two-year-olds and really any horses. Uh, not all of them uh, by any stretch, uh, but uh, if you can find a good chunk of horses working in a race, you can get a sense of who's doing well, who's not. How did you develop that skill? See, that's something that uh, I'm very impressed by and makes all the sense in the world that, you know, you're, you're getting it more from the source, more from a from real what I'd call like real data as opposed to, you know, the super soft. Oh, I hear this one's working well. But I think most people listening to this show today, I mean, not the, the industry people get it, but we also have a lot of horse players out there in the audience, many of whom, you know, are and, and by their own admission. And I'll, speaking of Jonathan Kenshin specifically with this, know that one end bites and the other end kicks. And, and that's about it. So how, how did you, as somebody who didn't grow up on a farm in Kentucky, uh, develop that skill? Yeah, I mean, for me, I kind of started out with that same mindset of, I don't know what I'm looking at, so uh, I'll just rely on other people. Uh, I used to read the DRF Clocker Report a lot and not really watch the videos myself. But once I started doing the morning line, um, I don't have access to the people that write the Clocker Report or their information beforehand. So I kind of was forced to do a little bit of my own learning about how to see these workouts and uh, figuring out for myself who's doing well and who's not. Uh, so Really, I just ended up watching a lot of them, uh, it just kind of developing my own eye over time. Uh, you, When you see these workouts at first glance, it can be hard to pick the horses apart or tell who's doing well, who's not. But especially for specific barns, when you start to get used to the way, let's say, Chad Brown works his horses and you notice slight differences or, you know, horses, you know, pulling away from company or some riders asking more than another one. You realize that's sort of atypical for a barn that typically has extremely well choreographed workouts in the morning. You start to take notes on that sort of thing. You notice things that are a little bit out of the ordinary. Some things catch your eye. And over time, I just kind of tried to be really observant about what, uh, I should be looking for in these workouts. Also listening to other smart people who know what they're looking at with these sorts of things. Uh, Naira's paddock analyst, Maggie Wolfendale, sometimes talks about this stuff and she's always dropping little nuggets of wisdom. So I try to, you know, just absorb all of that information from people that I consider smart on this topic and try to hone my own eye by doing that. 
That's a great answer. Really appreciate the, the, the thought you put into that. And it makes sense. You don't have the clocker report when you're making the morning line. I mean, I think just to be very clear to people, this is no disrespect to the people doing that work, but it's just physically not available. So you went out and, and, and learned it yourself. I just think that's so that, that's so great. Is that something that you'll look at, especially when you were learning after the fact, watch some videos, then see the clock report later and, and try to match up what grades they're getting with what you're seeing? I think that might be an interesting intermediary step for somebody looking to learn. Exactly. Um, it's kind of funny. The first year that I was doing the morning line in Saratoga, which was 2018, uh, you know, DRF sent me up to Saratoga that summer. And I was actually uh, living in a house with one of the guys that does the DRF clocker report. And I was thinking to myself ahead of time, oh, this is great. I'm going to have access to some inside information. I can pick his brain. But I don't know if you've ever talked to a clocker. Typically, <laughs> you know, they take a lot of notes. They record what they see. But if you ask them who they saw or, you know, go back in your the database that you think they're keeping to know who's working well and who's not, I mean, they can't tell you off the top of your head. They kind of have to look at the PPs and link everything up together. So I was kind of realizing as I was doing the work, I know who's working well in these races kind of before he does. Even though he's seen the workouts, he has to kind of link everything up and actually go through that work of making sure that, you know, who he saw is who he actually thinks it is running on race day. Uh, so uh, that turned out to not really be much help to me. I wasn't getting any information from that source ahead of time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, the, the way the clock report is useful to me is after it comes out um, and I'm looking up PPs, maybe I'll see that a horse that's making his debut worked with another horse that has already run and that horse will have clocker information on it. And I'll just go look back at the clock report from that previous day at Saratoga and see if there was some mention that this horse that was working in company with the horse that already raced. And then I can kind of pick up the notes from that and get a window into what they're going to say when it actually comes out for the upcoming race day. There are some barns in particular where I think that idea of collateral morning form, if you will, can be very productive. Typically, if, uh, you know, Todd Pletcher specifically, that's not necessarily true for every trainer, but I think of Pletcher in this regard, I think of Shug McGahee in this regard, when the babies are working together and one runs well and they worked comparably, the other one typically runs something within, uh, you, you know, a couple points of that number. Do you, do you think that's an accurate statement? Yeah, I mean, there are some barns, like I mentioned, Chad Brown, that when they work a horse in company with another one, they want that work to be very well choreographed. I mean, those horses are supposed to stay together the entire time. They're supposed to be a very similar levels of ability. So when you see some big mismatch in a work like that, it means that there's one horse that's kind of outrunning expectations a little bit, or maybe is just so headstrong and aggressive that the jockey can't contain this two-year-old to stay in company with the other one because he has so much natural speed. So you want to take note of that stuff. I mean, sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it's a negative. If a horse is extremely headstrong and not staying with company, maybe that means that, that horse is not going to be rateable when they actually get in the starting gate for an actual race. So it, you have to kind of balance the natural ability that you see with the professionalism that you also see in the morning. That's, I think, something that gets overlooked a little bit when people watch workouts. Uh, sometimes it's not a positive when a horse is, you know, not listening to his rider and drawing away from company in the morning. But no, I agree. It is important to see who the horses are working with, especially for those barns that have a lot of horses when they work an inexperienced runner with one that is a winner already or potentially has stakes experience. You see this sometimes from the Todd Pletcher barn. If they really like a two-year-old, they'll pair it with an older horse that maybe already has a few wins under its belt. And that's typically meaningful because they want to see how that two-year-old hangs with a runner that's already had a lot of time in their program and basically knows what to do in the morning. Let's pivot to talking about pedigree. How important 
our pedigree stats. And we'll start on the sire side when you're making your morning line. And then as an extension of that, when you're making your selections. Uh, pedigree, it, it definitely matters, uh, especially in those turf races. You want to see who's bred for the surface. Uh, win early pedigree. I mean, I think it also matters to some extent. There are some sires that just seem to have you know, exceptional success with their first time starters, you know, the constitutions, anybody from the into mischief line, it seems like they all uh, really get their first time starters to win at a high rate. Uh, so you you want to just note those uh, connections, those pedigrees that get uh, the horses to develop a little bit early. Uh, but for me, pedigree only matters up to a certain point. If I can actually see a horse's workout or get some, uh, you know, window into their physical makeup, the pedigree starts to matter a little bit less. I mean, if I see a horse that's, let's say, by Uncle Mo, and Uncle Mo is a sire that has a reputation for really stamping his horses with a certain way of moving and a way of uh, just a physical uh, makeup, uh, and you see a horse and it doesn't really look like that, then you start to say, well, how much is this horse really taking after the top side or the sire? Maybe it's taking after more of the dam side. So you you want to look at the pedigree, but also balance it with what you're seeing if you have other information into the horse. When we talk about handicappers using pedigree, it amazes me how much things have changed over time. We're very lucky later in the week to have the great handicapping author, Mark Kramer, on the show. He's going to be going over that Saratoga pick six with me for Saturday. And I went back in the last year or so and reread his book, Kinky Handicapping. Some of the advice in there is as, as fresh as the day it was written. And you get to the pedigree stuff, and it's unbelievable that you used to be able to make money or get some edge over the market simply knowing who the good grass sires were. It, it, all that stuff these days is so priced in. I think it's led a lot of people, including you and me, into doing these much deeper dives onto the dam side of the pedigree. Where do you get your information about the dam side of the pedigree? And, and how much does that factor in in both sides of the work that you're doing up here, making selections and making the line? Um, as far as the morning line, pedigree doesn't factor in that much for me. I mean, if there are some really big names in the pedigree, you're obviously going to lower that horse's odds a little bit. For instance, last week, there was a horse by Justify that was a half-sister to Run Happy. I mean, obviously, people are going to recognize those names in the pedigree, so no surprise, that horse took a lot of money regardless of how it was working coming into the race. Uh, but generally... I'm not factoring pedigree into the morning lines too much. Um, you know, there are some sires that obviously do have a lot of success, like the gun runners are very popular right now, just winning at a high percentage with everything. So maybe you're going to lower the gun runners for a trainer like Steve Aspis at a point or two. Um, but uh, I'm not building that into the lines too much. It's more from the handicapping side for me. And what you're saying is correct. I mean, people have so much access to pedigree information these days. It's hard to really gain an edge from looking at the pedigrees. I find that I can use pedigrees more in races where the horses are a little more experienced, maybe trying the turf for the first time, as you said, digging into that dam side a little bit, even just beyond uh, who the dam has produced. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're finding dams that haven't really produced a whole lot just yet. So I like to look into the second generation, the second dam, who the dam is a half sister to, um, if there's been production in the second generation of the family. I know some like to look even deeper than that into the third and fourth dam. I try to stay away from that a little bit because I know that you can go a little bit too crazy geeking out of the pedigrees. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, Mr. Prospector was a, you know, when you're talking about like the AP Indies or the others that have, you know, that's in their lineage. Uh, so um, 
you know, I, I want to like cut it off at a certain point. Uh, but I do think it's instructive to look at, you know, getting a picture of the dam's production and what you're likely to get from that side of the pedigree. And the thing that I think some people miss when they look at dam side pedigree is taking into account who that dam has been bred to before. For instance, if you have a dam that's been bred to Kitten's Joy five times, and then you suddenly have one produced by Union Rags, don't think that necessarily means that this dam is a turf producer. I think it just means that she's been bred to the right turf sires along the way. So you want to take that into account as well. That's a good point. Union Rags and the Kitten's Joy getting something very different potentially in terms of blood from those two sire lines. How much do you enjoy the, the pedigree digging? Like how far back does looking at pedigrees go in your evolution as a horse player? I mean, I've enjoyed looking at that for a while. I mean, as somebody who is... I guess, relatively young compared to some other people that do what I do. Uh, you know, I didn't see a lot of horses from the 80s and early 90s. So uh, one of the fun things for me looking through pedigrees, it's just kind of, you know, do some research into, you know, famous horses from the past, uh, you know, some of those famous bloodlines, the Phippses or, you know, the Jannies or others that, you know, you can look back and learn about the history of the game through pedigrees. That's always been really cool for me. And that's something that uh, I used to do a lot, even before I had to do the morning lines or public handicapping. That was just something that really interested me and helped me learn about the game a little bit. Um, but yeah, I do like to look at, uh, you know, deeper into those pedigrees. I use Dira Formulator, obviously a lot because you can get access to the past performances of any of a horse's or of a dam's progeny, the dam's PPs and some excellent statistics on that. Um, but I also use some other sources. Uh, you know, there's a free tool out there, Pedigree Query, where you can just see five generations of a horse's pedigree and, you know, learn a little bit. Uh, I think it's like a free database about all of the horses. You can link that up with Equibase. And, you know, these days you have a lot of these turf races at Saratoga for the two-year-old and a lot of purchases from overseas, you know, Chad Brown and Peter Brandt, they love to purchase from the Tattersall sale over in uh, in Europe. So you do have a lot of these European pedigrees that sometimes Equibase doesn't have a whole lot of data on. So I do also use Racing Post to look up some of those horses that you can check out a dam's progeny in there and other horses in the pedigree, their past performances and production. So uh, I try to get the information from any source that seems available. I think you name checked some of the best ones. The new pedigree tool on DRF Formulator, if folks haven't used it, it's incredible. I mean, it's just uh, beware if you're a geek like us, though. You could lose half of your day um, rabbit holing around <laughs> looking at some of these old past performances. It's such a cool way of looking at the world. And yeah, racing post at the races.com. Excellent ways because you'll see trends. I mean, we, we had a, a Kodiak first time starter, that long shot for, for Chad Brown win the other day and I had English friends chiming in uh, at me privately. Oh, you know, you got a, those Kodiak first time starters. It's almost an automatic bet. And I'm like, well, now you tell me, but if you go and poke around on racing post and at the races.com, you can find some of that information for yourself. I wanted to ask about an area that I think is a little bit disconnect is too strong a word, but something you often hear people on the breeding side of the business talk about when it comes to pedigree is the the crosses or the nicks between different uh, different sire lines. I was curious if that's something, as horse players, I, I don't think I've ever heard a horse player, with maybe a couple of exceptions, pull that out and, and, and talk about um, different sire lines and, and how they cross and how that might affect the success of progeny. Is that something you, you believe in or look at at all? It's not something that I've put a whole lot of stock in um, from the morning line perspective. Obviously, you were just yeah. you know summarizing the way horse players view it. I mean, it's not something that really moves the tote board much, so I'm not interested from that perspective. And from a handicapping standpoint, uh, 
I don't have hard data on that. So it's hard for me to really quantify what it means. I, I do know that people on the breeding and bloodstock side pay attention to that stuff. Maybe they have a lot better data on it than I do. So uh, it's hard for me to really speak to it. But sometimes it does, when I'm reading about it, sometimes it does feel like it's getting into that territory of looking too far back in a horse's pedigree, like, oh, you know, say this, you know, the, the second sire times the, you know, the, the, Dan's broodmare sire, his sire, the grandsire, you know, this cross really does very well. Well, how much of the pedigree really is that? 12.5% of the horse's genes? Does that really matter that much? Um, so I, I don't know. I don't uh, get into it that much. But if I saw some good data on it and it was really speaking loudly, I'd certainly respect it. It's an area worthy of further research. Another area I'm continually interested in learning more about is the difference in evaluating two-year-olds depending on how they got to their current barn, the differences between horses who are homebreds versus come from a yearling sale versus a two-year-old in training sale. Curious to just get your thoughts on that as an area for research. And, and again, the same question I've been asking all along. Uh, again, I can't imagine it affects the, mo the, the morning line too much, but in terms of selections, is how important is that to you to, to note those differences? Yeah, I mean, especially at this time of year, you see a lot of horses debuting coming out of those two-year-old sales, uh, you know, especially OBS, uh, March and April, the Fasic Tipton, they've got their Gulfstream sale in March and their Timonium sale in May. So you see a lot of horses coming out of, especially those four major sales. So, I mean, when the horses debut, especially during the summer of their two-year-old seasons, I do like to go back and look at their sales workouts. Obviously, the ones that worked nine and four or 10 flat, uh, are, they, they've shown some speed in those workouts. But I think you do have to keep in mind that the horses are trained a specific way to achieve those times in those sales workouts. And it doesn't always translate to them having speed when it actually comes to race day. I know some of these trainers, they get these two-year-olds into their barns, and just because they work 9-4 doesn't mean that they're going to be a speedball, and they're going to indoctrinate them into their training program, and it's really going to depend a lot more on the work that's been done in the months since that sale than the workout time that they were able to achieve at that sale three or four months ago before they debuted. So, I do like to take a look at the sales workouts, not so much to see how fast they worked, but more to just actually see the horse, how they look, how they're moving. Are they take? Do they appear like they're taking after one side of their bloodline or another? So for me, I'm not so much paying attention to how fast they're going or whether the exercise rider on their back is, you know, whipping and driving them or just staying motionless. I mean, I'm kind of assuming anybody who's working one of these two-year-old sales is going as fast as they can possibly go unless they look especially green. So I'm just more trying to take a look at, you know, the horse's physicality and how they look in that work. Um, and any subsequent information I have about the horse, if they've, you know, if there are workout videos of them last week, I'm going to put a lot more stock in that than how they looked three or four months ago. That's only logical. What about the idea that we used to talk about all the time on the old Ciro's uh, seminars with Harvey Pack, looking at that two-year-old in training sale price and what kind of a multiple it is of the sire's stud fee? Obviously, the idea being the better looking ones are going to have the bigger multiple potentially of the sire stud fee. Is that something that you think still holds any any sway in terms of handicapping signal? It definitely holds sway at the yearling sales, I would say. I mean, when your horse is a really good looker, uh, it's going to sell well. I always like to take notice of that. At the two-year-old sales, especially in recent years, it just seems like pedigree doesn't matter that much. I mean, if a horse works really fast, doesn't matter who's on the sire side, they're probably going to sell for a good chunk of money. Um, 
clearly if there's a gun router that's working nine four, it's probably going to sell for a million dollars. I mean, that's kind of built in. But uh, you know, there are horses that uh, can work really well and sell really well, and it doesn't really matter what their pedigree is if if uh, you know they're ticking all the boxes from a physical standpoint and they've got the speed. So. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't put too much stock into that. Uh, how horses sell relative to the sire side, um, but uh, I, I do definitely look at those sales workouts. To just kind of get as much information as I can. Makes a lot of sense. Another little pet theory of mine regarding homebreds. I'm curious to see how you evaluate this one or, or, or buy it. With a homebred, especially, I'm very much willing to. And again, pedigree dependent and barn and owner dependent, but very much willing to forgive slower races maybe sprinting down at Belmont when they come up to Saratoga and stretch out and do more of what the bloodlines say they're meant to do. I think sometimes the market can get a little bit too stuck into a lower buyer figure that really doesn't hold relevance, especially with a homebred who it's sort of baked into the cake that they're willing to take a little bit more time with. How do you evaluate homebreds in general? And what do you think of my little pet theory? No, I agree with it. I think that the number of homebreds that you're seeing lately is decreasing over the years. Uh, these sure. racing families that you know used to have a lot of horses are kind of downsizing. You know, you're barely seeing any Phipps runners anymore. Uh, so they're just. You know, there are the number of well-meant homebreds that there used to be. So uh, I agree with your theory. I just feel like we're seeing it applied a lot less. Uh, you're seeing most horses come out of sales these days. And, you know, I'm kind of almost doubting that horses are, you know, true uh, homebreds that have been raised to race because sometimes you see a horse that's a homebred. And I always like to just, with any horse, look up on Equibase to look at their sales history and you'll notice that a lot of homebreds are RAs. They just didn't sell at the sale. And that's why they're racing for their current connections. So I do like to be aware of that stuff. And sometimes you'll see some actual, some gigantic RNA prices on these horses. So I, I do like to, to be aware of that. Uh, but no, in theory, I do agree with you. If you know that there is, you know, like say Stuart Janney and uh, Shug McGahee has his horse and it's making its debut at Saratoga. Um, it's probably done well and it's well meant. It's it's uh, you know progressed to the point that it can debut early for a family that typically does not rush their horses along. So you want to expect that the horse is going to show some ability, but know that it's probably not you know a finished product just yet. It's a you know just a step along the way. It's a work in progress. I want to talk to you about trainer statistics and how important they are in your whole process at this point. I think that's where it it begins and ends for some people when it comes to two-year-old races. Obviously, it seems like your methodology has evolved over time, but, but how important is the work you can do with the trainer tool in a product like DRF Formulator? That's something that I really do put a lot of stock in, especially on the handicapping side, uh, you know, knowing which trainers have success with which moves and also sometimes comparing the public's perception of what trainers do well and what the actual t- statistics say. And sometimes it can diverge a little bit. Like, you know, Steve Asperson has this uh, this reputation of doing really well with maiden second time starters at Saratoga and things change over time. And sometimes trainers change their programs a little bit. And it's funny, I was just looking up Asperson stats with that move over the past week. And I was kind of shocked to discover that the ROI maiden second time starters at Saratoga in the past five years, the $2 ROI is under a dollar. He just hasn't had success with that recently. Whereas that was kind of a big part of his program five, 10 years ago. So um, Asperson's gotten a lot more potent with the first time starters recently, and he's got great stats doing that. So I try to pay attention of how to how the trainers are doing, especially 
Recently, I look at, you know, for a trainer like Todd Pletcher that starts a lot of two-year-olds, I like to look at the trends of the barn. Sometimes these barns win at a high percentage. The ROI is not quite there. So you want to be aware of sometimes these situations where they get overbet. Um, Chad Brown, for instance, a trainer that's, you know, the first-time starters typically take a lot of money. They win at a decent percentage rate, but the ROI is typically very low. There are certain situations where you can drill down a little further and find angles where Chad Brown does well. For instance, Chad Brown with in turf routes, first time starters over the past five years, I think he's won with nine of them, but without Irad Ortiz riding them, he's over. So um, if Irad's not on one of his firsters in a turf route, um, he really hasn't had any success. I just find that stuff to be interesting to kind of, you know, figure out, you know, the jockeys these trainers are putting on, the spots they're starting them in. Um, what do they do well and what is their plan to try to win these races? Curious to see. I have to poke on this topic because it's so interesting. Any other sort of under the radar, uh, under the radar trainer angles that you're looking for as this meet uh, continues? Not to make you give away all your secrets, but you know, you write about this stuff anyway. So maybe you can be generous with one that pops to mind. Ah, oh, geez. You know, Todd Pletcher, a, a trainer that it's kind of funny. I was looking up the stats recently. He does not have very good stats with maiden second time starters, but uh, maiden third time starters at Saratoga over the past five years, I think he's something like seven for 11 or seven for 12. Um, <laughs> it, just kind of a random stat because it's a pretty small sample, but I was kind of, I was surprised when I looked that up. I think that it's slightly lower because he sent one out last week that actually lost. I think it's now seven for 12, but just kind of funny because you would assume for Todd Pletcher, if it's already had a couple chances, it's probably not one of his best two-year-olds, but you know, some of those horses, they have won at Saratoga over the past few years. Um, you know, I mentioned Steve Asmussen. Um, I'm trying to think of some other barns that, you know, don't, uh, that, that have those reputations. I mean, uh, Jorge Abreu, a trainer that I think a lot of uh, people are onto now, is doing very well with the first-time starters, really across the board, any kind of situation, whether it's turf or dirt, sprinting. Um, he's really been doing well over the past few years, kind of having a quiet year so far in 2022 with all starters. So maybe take that with um, take that into consideration that the barn has not been winning at as high of a rate lately. Uh, but uh, that's a barn that does extremely well with the first-time starters. Uh, and then the Kentucky trainers, you know, I'm not always as familiar with the patterns there. So I really do try to dive into the stats to see, you know, what they're doing well. Joe Sharp, a trainer that doesn't have great first time out stats, but does very well with the second time starters. So I try to pay attention to that, you know, comparing one to another, you know, what stage of a horse's career does this barn really excel? Any specific two-year-olds that you're looking forward to seeing up here? Or for you, does it not really matter until you get those first uh, cut of the past performances in your hand? I mean, if I have some extra time on my hands, with which doesn't happen too often during Saratoga, I'll sit down on like XBTV and try to watch some workouts of horses that I, you know, haven't shown up in the PPs yet, get a sense of, you know, who's doing well. I remember I did that at one point last summer. And that's when I first saw one of Jack Christopher's works like way before he was entered. So, I mean, you do then develop some things to look forward to when those horses show up in the entries. Uh, but generally, I, I just wait for the PPs to come out and then I, you know, try to see who's doing well, who's not. But um, more often when I'm watching the workouts for a horse that's running and I'll notice that a horse that's running today worked with another horse that hasn't debuted yet and maybe just got blown out of the water by that unraced horse. So then I'll kind of, you know, check that off and, or, you know, file that in the back of my head, like, oh, this is one that I really can't wait to see when he actually shows up in the entries. Um, it, it's usually more of along those lines, you know, kind of uh, 
seeing horses along the way that I'll be looking forward to down the line. We can put in a plug for your colleague, Dave Grenning, who we tried to get on with us uh, at, at some point recently, but we were having some some technical difficulties. Hopefully we'll get him before the, the meet's over. But he does that nice piece, sort of barn tours of some of the bigger barns, highlighting some of the runners who are expected to be uh, the best among their their numbers. Would an article like that factor into the morning line potentially? Because once that information is out there widely, I would think people will come for those horses a little bit. Oh yeah, I love to read that article just to kind of you know see the names, uh, the sires that uh, the different barns are excited about, and keep them in the back of my head when I watch the workouts. But I mean, sometimes those horses will train on two, three, four weeks after the article was written, and they don't develop in the way that the barns thought they would, or things change over time. I mean, with the two-year-olds, so much can change in the span of a month or two months uh, that the, the the horses that the barn liked at the start of the summer may not be the same horses that they like in the middle of the meet or by the end of the meet. So um, I try to trust my eye more than what the barn said, you know, back you know, so early. Uh, another great tool that I do like to read from time to time is in the Saratoga special. They'll do the barn tour sometimes and you'll get direct quotes from the trainers about specific horses in their barns. Uh, that can be really informative if it comes out that, you know, you know, just links up in time that, you know, a horse hasn't debuted yet and you get some interesting information about that. Um, but, you know, for instance, last weekend at Saratoga, I know Grenning had written in his article that Pletcher, you know, one of the two-year-old males he was really looking forward to was Batflip and one of the Phil was uh, Kaling, and they debuted on the same card, and they actually worked together in one of the recent workouts. And you could see that the filly, Kaling, was just going so much better than the male horse. And maybe that was a horse that they really liked at the start of the summer, but he just hadn't really been working well. And, you know, they put Irad Ortiz on him in the afternoon. He still took a lot of money, but to me, up to my eye, the workouts just weren't really there. Uh, so the Philly one, the, the Colt uh, bat flip was just kind of nowhere and looked really green. He's probably one that they're going to have to figure out a little bit uh, to get to, you know, racing shape in the afternoon. But uh, yeah, you do want to trust your eye. The, 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 the most important factor. Here's what a dope I am. <laughs> Noticing that they work together after bat flip didn't run well. I sort of had a reflexive, well, Kaling might be good, but eh, that work did that race didn't thrill me, and I, I just got suckered onto the the Westward uh, hype train with the uh, the half to the, the one that was kin to to run happy by Justify, who in retrospect maybe was actually a little bit cold on the board at only four to five. I should have listened to you, David. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Somebody actually asked me that on Twitter right between the two races. Like, are you now downgrading your opinion on liking Kaling later because this horse ran so poorly in the first race? And I, I said no, because the horse in the first race was so green. It's like, we don't really know how much ability he has. He just never really got into a full gallop because he looked like so discombobulated out there. And also just... I try to forget about when I see the workouts, like, you know, comparing them to each other a little bit. You can, when you kind of refine your eye a little bit, you can tell when a horse is really moving well, when they get into that gallop out and they're just really, you know, taking the exercise rider with them and showing ability. Uh, you know, I saw that from the two-year-old filly later in the day, that she really just kind of had everything figured out. She had that way of moving that just says, wow, there's really talent here. And the colt didn't. So to me, it didn't really matter so much, even though they were just a length apart in the workout. In my eye, the gap between those two was much bigger than what it showed in the workout video. 
great analysis. You can read David's analysis. Um, what's the easiest way to find actually your the the time form U.S. notes that you uh, that you pop out there where you're diving into specific races? Obviously, you do a lot of the closer look work as well. But that daily analysis is something everybody should be reading. Yeah, you can uh, navigate to naira.com slash timeformus. That's where I put out, uh, you know, I write about a few races every day at Saratoga, the ones that interest me most from a wagering standpoint. Sometimes it's the two-year-old races. If I really you know, have seen something that catches my eye, I'll write those up. Um, I know some handicappers like to shy away from having big opinions in those two-year-old races, but I find that, you know, I typically get enough information that I can do pretty well in those races. So uh, I'll sometimes find horses that are worth playing in those. Uh, but yeah, you can find it there, naira.com slash timeformus. Like you said, sometimes I'll do a lot of the, I'll do some of the closer look work. I usually write two per day for Friday, Saturday, Sunday at Saratoga. And sometimes they'll assign me a two-year-old race, uh, which I don't mind doing. I mean, I've already done a lot of the work for that anyway. So it's just kind of getting it down on paper. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that as well. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Horse to Watch. I want to ask you about misconceptions in two-year-old races. One misconception that I'll, I'll start by throwing one out, and then if you have another one that springs to mind, you can you can piggyback off it. But I think this idea that somehow two-year-old races are are benefits to horse racing insiders, I just think it's very ill-conceived. And as you've pointed out through the course of our time chatting today, there's a lot of data and a lot of signal to be found. Does anything leap to your mind in terms of something people think about two-year-old races that is uh, that you don't think is accurate? I think there's a misconception at Saratoga that every time any horse takes money, that it's live and there's an inside story about that horse. But sometimes I feel like the hype machine just gets a little bit out of control. Uh, you know, for instance, I mean, there'll be a Todd Pletcher or Chad Brown horse that I don't think is working that well. But if they put the right kind of jockey on it and it's in the right kind of race, that horse is going to take a lot of money just because of the connections. And, you know, if it starts to take a little bit of money, I mean, suddenly it's like turning the faucet on and everybody gloms onto that opinion. So I feel like sometimes what people perceive as live money isn't actually, or I should say what people perceive as smart money isn't actually the smartest money. Um, So you can get an edge in the two-year-old races if you really know what you're looking at from time to time. It doesn't always work that way, but when you do have a, you know, the right kind of window into it, um, that could be the case. And also just reading intentions of Barnes at Saratoga. Sometimes these horses are really cranked up to win first time out. Or they're, they're, that's really the goal with them. And you know, for certain barns that will do well with second time starters at other times in the year, sometimes if those horses that are really cranked up to win their first start and they don't get it done or they don't quite run to expectations, they don't necessarily always take that step forward second time out. Uh, you do want to be aware of those intentions and especially in a track like Saratoga, where if a horse got a really good trip first time out and didn't get it done, uh, Sometimes it's not the best sign because Saratoga, it's a very demanding track. The kickback is really tough for the two-year-olds on the dirt course. Those two-year-old races on the the turf, the routes, the turns, it can be a lot for some of them. So you want to try to figure out which horses needed to learn something or got the right kind of education in their debuts. Not so much the ones that, you know, had the obvious good performances with good trips. Those are sometimes the ones you want to downgrade moving forward. Makes perfect sense. If you had one piece of advice to somebody looking to improve their game when it comes to handicapping these two-year-old races at Saratoga, what would that be? 
really just listen to analysts that you respect, uh, you know, try to learn as much as you can, look at the statistics, uh, and just try to absorb the information. There's a lot to find out there. There are even a lot of free resources that you don't have to pay subscriptions for to learn about these two-year-olds. Uh, so, I mean, just try to watch some workouts, uh, you know, read about some pedigrees, get some information about these horses. It's not, it's not that hard to do if you know the right places to look. And uh, it can actually be kind of rewarding to figure out an angle on the horse that maybe other people weren't privy to and see that horse actually, you know, run in the afternoon and figure out that, okay, I saw something that actually uh, turned out to be right. It feels like we've been a little bit light on two-year-old racing, especially open two-year-old racing thus far in the meet in Saratoga. Do you imagine that's going to pick up? One theory Nick Tamaro and I were floating the other day was it has to do with between modern training methods and the way the stakes calendar works out that you might get caught with too many weeks between one of your oh-so-few starts. You're expecting your potentially Breeders' Cup-bound two-year-old to have and, and that business will pick up soon. Just curious if you think that's correct, that there's been a little bit of a downturn in the number of two-year-old races and, and what you predict for the rest of the Saratoga meet. I mean, obviously, you know, people have talked a lot about the full crop and just, you know, be there being fewer horses in general. Uh, but no, I did notice the chatter about that. Obviously, in opening week, there weren't a whole lot of open two-year-old races. Uh, I, I do think it was just a little bit of a fluky thing. There were a lot of two-year-old races at the Churchill Downs meet recently. I feel like a lot of those Kentucky Barns may not have been ready to strike with their best two-year-olds in the first week of the Saratoga meet coming right off of that Churchill meet. Uh, and also, it's just kind of... The, you know, the cyclical flow of things. I'm sure that, you know, over the past few years, people have noticed that the two-year-olds are debuting later and later, whereas used to see some top barns debut good horses at Belmont Park. Now that almost never happens. There were very few two-year-old races at Belmont. And I just feel like they're, they're, the good horses are coming out later and later in the summer. So we're likely to see some very good two-year-olds still at the Saratoga meet, but it's probably going to happen towards the end of July and August and September. Um, they, they just probably weren't ready to go that first week of the meet. Makes perfect sense as well. Before I let you go, and this will be my last one, I've kept you longer than I said. Horse players, I think at this point, pretty darn familiar with you, David, but this show has a real mixed audience between industry people and horse players. And, and for some of them who might not be as familiar with your background, how you got into this, I just wanted to do a, a biographical question of how you got into it and, and how you came to know so much about this great game of ours. I mean, uh, so yeah, I'm not from a horseman background. Uh, not really. Uh, I just grew up in a family that was into horse racing. My dad and my uncle were more, you know, just interested as fans of the sport, the gambling side. Um, my dad have, did have a brief stint in the 80s, like working as a, you know, a hot walker and groom on the backstretch for a, um, a, a barn in New Jersey. Not because like, not because he needed to, he just kind of was so obsessed with horses. He wanted to somehow get close to them. So he would kind of wake up early in the morning and do that before he like went to his real job. Um, but uh, no, no, my, my dad and my uncle, they're really into the gambling side of things. And so I learned a lot about handicapping from them. And as I kind of got a little bit older and was out of college, I really got into the handicapping and horse playing side. Um, and, you know, long story short, um, I started doing a lot of what I do now, but on my own, some blogging, um, some stuff on social media, and just the right people in the industry caught wind of what I was doing, noticed me, and I ended up getting some opportunities that led to where I am now. 
That's fantastic. And yeah, definitely an example of uh, of Twitter, a rare example, perhaps, of Twitter being a force for good in uh, in horse racing. I feel like I was reading you for a, a long time on there before you were officially part of the industry. And it, it sounds like that was part of what got you your, your break. It's good to know things like that can happen still. Yeah. Um, you know, I... I really didn't know anybody my age who was into horse racing when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s. So I kind of just started doing it as a way to connect with people. And uh, it worked. I mean, there's a really vibrant community out there in horse racing Twitter and horse racing social media in general. Um, and, you know, when you meet these people of similar interests, uh, you know, you can really get some opportunities and people in the horse racing industry do want to help each other out when they see somebody who's got something smart to say, you know, they want that person working in the industry. So I've really been encouraged by, uh, you know, some of the connections that I've been able to make. I'll tell you this, you need to do more on the mic because you're fantastic at it. As good as all your, uh, your written stuff is really appreciate the opportunity to have you on here today. Look forward to reading your stuff throughout the rest of the meet. And hopefully, because no good deed goes unpunished around here, we can have you back on soon. I love it. Thanks, Pete. This was really fun. Thank you once again to David Aragona. Thanks also to our friends at Gainsway. Really appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show. Really appreciate David giving his time and this excellent overview, hopefully evergreen overview of two-year-old racing at Saratoga. But of course, all these uh, these ideas can be applied to two-year-old races, wherever you find them. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. This has been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Cotney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>